The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. Shall we begin? It is extremely common for spy movies and television shows to play around on the very cutting edge of technology, usually taking at least a few steps beyond what is strictly possible. And yet, spy stories set in purely science fiction settings are quite rare. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies, and sometimes spy television shows. The complex political struggles of Star Trek's Deep Space Nine series are fertile ground for some juicy interstellar espionage stories, so it makes sense to include a spy character in the cast. We're going to talk about the tradecraft of Elon Garrick in this episode of Spies Like Us. We have put some TV series on the list, but... This one, we're not exactly doing the TV series. We're doing a specific character from the TV series. And it's also going to be our first science fiction spy. Oh, that's right. Or not a lot. We, we were talking about that. We were going to try and do a science fiction one. And I, yeah, this is this is our first one. The subject is Elam Garrick from the, the Deep Space Nine series of Star Trek. I think even hardcore Trek fans will find something to enjoy about this uh, deep dive into one particular very interesting character. The Spies Like Us podcast is really about tradecraft and spy characters. Uh, so we're going to take a different approach to Garrick than you might be used to. Deep Space Nine, of course, runs seven seasons from 1993 to 1999. It is the first series where Rick Berman took over major control and and the show it's the first star trek that isn't directly influenced by gene roddenberry this show really does take advantage of the fact that maybe they could get out from under some of his particular constraints and have a series that makes heavy use of characters who have you know more mixed and nuanced loyalties and not just to the federation but yeah you're right there's definitely a different approach to the characters i really really enjoyed it uh, I liked how like there were so many conflicting views that had to be resolved because they were like stuck in one place or within one vicinity, you know, the alpha quadrant or like the neighboring gamma quadrant. There there had to be a resolution between conflicting views. I, I don't know. I could talk about this all night, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about tradecraft. Yeah. Okay. Well, Garrick is indeed awesome and um, was originally intended to be a one-off character. They only... We're bringing Andrew Robinson in to do uh, just one episode. And they were so impressed with his performance that they decided to develop the character into a full uh, member of the cast. Uh, he pretty much had like a, a very uh, kind of a unique opportunity actor-wise that he apparently really, really took to. There's so much uh, interesting and kind of kind of challenging to get your arms around this character because, well, he's always lying. He's almost always lying. Lying is uh, one of his core uh, values, in fact. Um, I think what both Todd and I really keyed in on is uh, Garrick's real talent is omission of information. I, I think the times that he's actually flat out lied, like told said something that was false is in times where it was necessary for him to do. But in general, I think he's 
actually telling the truth. He's just kind of crafting the truth for whatever audience he has. He's an unreliable witness, mainly because of his use of deception. There do seem to be like some core, just Cardassian values that uh, mm -hmm. are, are shared amongst all Cardassians uh, mm -hmm. by, by default. Uh, mm -hmm. Their number one priority is loyalty to the state. And then they have a secondary loyalty to their parents. Right. And, and uh, I think it was season seven, episode 22, Wayun, the Vorda. Uh, he, he, he flat out just describes the nature of Cardassians. They respect authority and they value the rule of law and the security of order. I think it also comes out in when um, Ducat at one point is describing his frustration with the Bajoran's refusal to submit to Cardassian authority to to Ducat's Cardassian mind, uh, you know, if the Bajorans would just play ball with the way the universe is supposed to work, everything would be fine and no one would actually have to get hurt. <laughs> right. Uh, very Nietzschean. Like, you should just recognize the strong and appreciate their strength and live under their strong values. Um, Goldacott's ideas, you know, to him, he was very generous and kind because he wasn't as torturous as Cardassia wanted. And in his mind, he protested and uh, appealed to Cardassia to take a more kinder approach. But his like kind approach was scaled to a different level than Cardassia that like in his mind, he, he was the kind and generous person and that the Bajorans were unappreciative. I think that can be inferred too in the, the, the family relationship too, because that loyalty to parents seems to be like a very one way trip uh, in Cardassian values. It's, it's the children that owe loyalty to the parents. The parents don't seem to actually owe any loyalty to their children, or at least we see that in a lot of Cardassian family interactions. Uh, Garrick's father certainly is uh, super <laughs> happy to throw Garrick under the bus and treat him like shit. Right at every opportunity, but Garrick never seems to really, really on a fundamental level, criticize his father for that because that's just how Cardassians do. And yeah, it's kind of a lesson of survival of the fittest, especially with Garrick and Tane's uh, uh, relationship. Right. Your parents, your parents, your parents are smarter and stronger than you. So according to the way Cardassians think the universe should work, the kids should just do what their parents say. And Ducat is also like, he's um, got that situation with his daughter. He's really annoyed that she won't uh, go along with what he wants. Although I think that's one of the places um, I didn't see the episode. You might've seen it more recently. Isn't, isn't uh, Ducat choosing his daughter over the state, some kind of part of yeah. his disconnect? Uh, in the, when, when we, when we finally get to Pale Moonlight, cause that's one of the biggest highlight episodes we're going to talk about, um, the fake video transmission, Wei Yun is like, Ducat's an idiot. He chose his daughter over, you know, uh, uh, taking over and gaining power and conquering and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, but you know, I, I like that you pointed out Zial's kind of rebellion towards her father. It, it shows the dynamic between her Cardassian love for her father and respect for her father, but also the Bajoran um, uh, belief in autonomy. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's 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 nicely it's nicely sketched out there. And I like to think that Ducats, you know, the 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 thing the reason you set these, you know, strong values up is so that when a character does break with those values, it's a big like, you know, it's a big feel moment. Yeah. Right. Like, oh, like <laughs> Right. You know. Yeah, and that, uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, you're definitely right. Because all of the times while Zial was still alive, uh, Ducat literally she, she was his biggest priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now, given all that, here's what I was, what I think I can confirm, like by evidence of of what's seen of uh, Garrick's values. Um, he's apparently broken free from the primary Cardassian loyalty to the state. He's uh, him and the state are no longer on, on good terms. And he doesn't seem to uh, be super eager to repair that breach, but he is still uh, demonstrably loyal to his, his species, to his race. You know, when- he's definitely devoted to his people uh, to some degree. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's the current government, even before the dominion alliance with the dominion, he he still doesn't love Gualducat and power, and he he he's very loyal to his people and culture. Right, and to the extent to which, when he learns that the Klingons plan to do a sneak attack against Cardassia, he feeds that information to his old enemy Ducat. His his uh, his desire to protect Cardassian people from getting hurt override his. Uh, disagreements with the government to that extent. Um, like I said before, we still see that he definitely still retains the loyalty to parents. Uh, he, you know, his relationship with his father is extremely fraught. Um, but, uh, you know, like a, like a, like a puppy, you know, it's like no matter how many times his dad kicks him, he's still going back to that well. It, it would not cross his mind to just write his father off and say like, okay, fine. You know, we don't have a thing anymore. Right. Um, another of his, um, well, you know, like survival was mentioned, you know, as a value, you know, when we're looking at Garrick, we're trying to figure out what does he really care about? Well, like one way you could look at as you're watching the show, I mean, by the time you're finished with the show, you probably have formed a whole bunch of different opinions. But along the way, you're just getting fed these little drips of information. And you're always being reminded that at any point, Garrett could be lying about what he actually cares about. Um, but obviously, you know, self-preservation um, could be a, could have been uh, said to be like his sole motivation for almost everything he does, but that would kind of be true of everyone. But, but with all those caveats, but, but, but um, there's possibly too that, uh, and this might be a Cardassian thing as well. It definitely seems to be an obsidian order thing that uh, revenge slash outliving your enemies seems to be something that Cardassians <laughs> prize. Um, yeah. So in addition to, I, I think uh, I think you had a note here about some episode. Then fight for a new Cardassia. He says I have an even better reason, uh, you know, which is revenge. And in the wire too, we see that he's willing to suffer greatly. Like we get the idea that even a life of like 
uh, torment and, and no happiness or joy would be preferable to him than death and letting his enemies outlive him. Right. And I think you had brought up that uh, Taines made that a big point was outliving his enemies. Right. On his, on his deathbed. That was, that was his father's like main concern. You know, is this guy still alive? Is this guy still alive? What about these guys? No, he's going down his list. Every Cardassian seems to have a list, you know, of yeah. of, of people that uh, they feel like need to be taken care of before they can consider their life their life complete. And uh, I think Ducat is is on uh, Garrick's list there. Um, at some points, this might not be a value, but at some points when it's a little difficult to figure out why he's getting involved when he doesn't necessarily need to be, um, there might be some indications that he might just be a little bit addicted to the game and just like to have his hand in. Yeah. Or like, like I think he described it as having his like pinky on, 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 the, on the pulse of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Just a little toe in the water, yeah. uh, which... <laughs> Which is also a good way to maintain your survival, you know, so that so that things don't if you're if you stay completely uninvolved and disconnected from everything that's going on around you, your enemies might be able to sneak up on you better than if you're, you know, kind of finding some reason to be in the room where the decision big decisions are being made. Right. Uh, There's a really interesting scene in the die is cast uh this is the one where he tortures odo and then um seems really really upset about that uh actually i think i was going to talk about that more later but uh Mm -hmm. i'll just say for right now there's a scene that demonstrates also he might have the motivation of not just not being the person he used to be because we get a lot of indications that garrick has been a very, very bad person for a very, very long time, done a lot of bad things. So just in general, not, not, you know, wanting to not be the person he used to be. And to some extent, maybe just not wanting people to think of him as the old Garrick, that could also be motivation for some of the stuff he does. And that's really what I got for confirmed values. And and you have some thoughts, of course. Number one, survival. There are times where I think he really does pour his heart out or is honest. And, and I think, I think it was season five, episode 26, call to arms where uh, he's leaving to jump on the defiant. And just before that, he has a conversation with Ziel. And, you know, we all know Ziel is like in love with him and, you know, he's told her before, you know, she's like, well, why do you talk to me? He's like, you're a Cardassian. You know, I I'm a long way from home, but she's all worried about his life and what's going to happen to him. And he goes on this whole rant. And I think, that is really, I think, his number one, you know, and there's many, many moments where survival for his life and his uh, business and his kind of well-being, and this goes back to your point about outliving your enemies, but he said, he tells her a whole story, you know, I once knew a Cardassian, a dashing and handsome young man, you know, uh, with a promising career, you know, but he got exiled and had nowhere to run. But did he give up? No, he stuck upon a brilliant plan, you know, instead of fleeing or whatever. Yeah. What what he did was he put himself surrounded by hostile strangers, 
like the last place his enemies would expect, built a life, set up his tailor shop, you know, and, and, and his last point to her is the moral of the story, my dear, is to never underestimate my gift for survival. So I, I really think not only does he have a talent, but he has a motivation for survival. Then I think his like next layer of motivation is his loyalty to family and friends or people he's like a strong bond to. You know, number one, going through huge lengths to get to his father, even though it was like a big mistake, um, you know, both times that he goes chasing after uh, Tane. Um, but w- one of the quick points I wanted to talk about is uh, really his loyalty to Cardassia and Cardassians, not really the government and current government, but just the people. You know, he makes a big point. It's a rich and ancient culture. Old Cardassia is dead, you know. And then Kira is just like, then fart for a new Cardassian. He's like, I have an even better reason, revenge. Yeah. So we were talking about like revenge, you know, living your enemies type of thing. His friendship with Zial talking about that he's alone and a long way from home. Helping Cisco to beat the Dominion. And I think this kind of has an overlapping layer with with, uh, what I think he also has demonstrated in another motivation is kind of doing, serving the right. You know, he, he, he has a means to an end, which I think everybody sees in him, but I think he sees things like this is the right thing to do. And whether it also happens to serve his uh, need for survival, his love for his friends and family, his love for Cardassia, I, I think there are some moments where he actually is trying to do the right thing. Like, for example, when he finds about the Bajoran bomb, he he doesn't have to tell anybody about that, um, but he does. And he, he stops the bombing. You know, like you pointed out, it's really hard to kind of find these things out mainly because of his, his poker face that he always keeps, you know, he's always got that smirk and mm-hmm. he's always like, he's always omitting information. He's always controlling the which, conversation which, no matter which, who he's talking to, which is coming right up uh, as soon as we get <laughs> into the briefing room. You know, and I think you're right that they wanted to leave that air of suspicion or, um, uh, ambiguity. You ready to talk about some uh, generic general tradecraft? Absolutely. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. So let's talk about uh, some general notes on on Garrick's tradecraft uh, before we get into a few specific episodes and instances. And I want to start out with his, uh, what I call his poker smirk. Um, (laughs) It's interesting that uh, Garrick himself, the character, is not a particularly great actor. Um, I don't think, I I think that when we see him showing distress, uh, it's authentic. Um, I can't think of any time where he, he like cynically abuses an appeal, an appeal to pathos in order to advance an agenda. You know, we discussed this and I kind of wasn't sure what you were talking about at first, but then like, you know, you, you, you kind of really explained it to me. Like he doesn't put on a performance. He always uses logic and reason, like in facts, like he, he makes sure to put up the right fact, even, even if he uses, specific words that might affect someone's uh-huh. he, 
he's never gonna like you know put on this melodramatic performance he would never like you know in miller's crossing you know he wouldn't be down on his knees saying look into your heart look into (laughs) your heart right he would be kind of like uh uh that's what quark does all the time right yeah yeah (laughs) oh yeah 100 (laughs) percent um yeah, but that's not Garrick's style. Garrick would be, you know, if Garrick was out there in the woods uh, with uh, with Dude, he'd be standing there with that same fucking smirk on his face and calmly explaining to you uh, exactly what you have to gain or lose from shooting him. And some of that would be, some of the stuff he would say would be true. Some of it would could be lies. And he's always got that smirk of just like, you know, that smirk and that, that witty, you know, quirky, you know, one-liners and, and uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with you. I was starting to think of it as almost like his version of a poker face. And I was, I was super happy to see that uh, Andrew Robinson, the actor, uh, confirmed that there's an origin of that, that smirk in, in his novel, that there's at some point early in Garrick's career, uh, someone like specifically teaches him that technique. Uh, oh, really? To, to to always uh hide his emotions. Oh, that's pretty cool. He's never pretending to be a better friend to you, like friend, like feely friends, warm hearted. Come on, we're buddies, right? But yeah, he he never does play the loyalty card. He always either demonstrates it through actions or wants you to guess if he's loyal. In fact, he he makes it a point to make you think that he's not being loyal. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and that you have to make the decision yourself. And then he watches the feedback of that, I guess, input into his variable, into the situation that he's already kind of put a control into. Uh, and and I, that, that's I, I think this is what makes – what I like Garrick so much about is, is that he doesn't, he always wants people to question his motives or his loyalties. There's a, uh, there's a interesting, well, I think a fascinating entity in a series of fantasy novels called the Shannara uh, books. This is um, like a, a ghost that lives in a pond. It's called the Grim Pond. This ghost mm-hmm. has has been there since the beginning of time, and the ghost knows everything. And it also hates all life. There's two things you know when you go to the Grim Pond. Number one, it knows the answer to the question you're asking. Right. Num- number two, it will tell you whatever it thinks has the greatest chance of getting you killed. So you you have to do these gymnastics, but you're so desperate that you're going to the Grimpon. You know that you can't take the information at face value, but you also know that whatever information it gave you, if you are clever enough, you would be able to figure out what you needed to know without it getting you killed. Um, and, And, you know, obviously... You know, Garrick is not doesn't have that quality of hating all living things. Far from it. Right, right. Um, I but, mean, like, but what, also, what the also, line- also, when you when you go to Garrick, you're always kind of playing that same game. 
you're going to him because you have no choice. You know, right. <laughs> you know, he's not just going to entirely tell you the truth, but you know that he does know what you need to know. And so maybe if you can untangle his lies, you can get what you want and emerge unscathed. Yeah, yeah. It might not just be what he knows, but what he can do, which I, I think you're setting us up for uh, 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 when we talk about Pale Moonlight. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, um, I, I think that's a wonderful analogy of Garrick. Um, and, uh, but one thing I did want to say is there was that moment with him and O'Brien where they're on the runabout and they're just chatting. And, like, Garrick is like, you know, all of you have become very trusting of me. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and I think it's because he's earned it through his actions. Like he always wants you to question his loyalty, question his motives, question his information. But I think he's built up enough of a rapport and enough of a relationship with the people of DS9. It unravels that... slowly over time, over the arc of yeah. the series, because there's only so long he could be just cast as this one note. Uh, you know, I mean, in his early episodes, there's nothing to prove that he isn't actually, in fact, still working for the Obsidian Order. Um, right. But, you know, there's we get all the way into season three until uh he spills the beans on that and it, it right. probably you know probably time by then and but yeah it's it's much later you know you just have to you have to let the character have some room for growth but yeah. uh, <laughs> but i think they do it slowly and well and of course a lot of garrick's tradecraft occurs off screen like the the vast majority of it i mean um yeah, it made it really difficult for us to kind of. I mean, like this is why I hard binged the show is is to to find little nuggets for us to kind of put together. And Todd did an enormous amount of research to do this because, like, I, I I found from watching it there was more tradecraft from the rest of the cast than from Garrick, and he's like the super spy. But you are always know his fingers are somewhere in the background based on his on-screen moments and the effects of his on-screen moments. Mhm. Hallelujah. So yeah, that's his <laughs> that's his that's his general that's his general style. Um let's hit some specifics starting with uh his first appearance in episode 3 of the first season, past prologue. Uh like you mentioned, oh, so now here the first thing I noticed is that, you know, the sisters, the Klingon sisters, they uh, come to him with a proposal. Uh, basically, they're going to hand over a Bajoran militant to him that he can then turn over to the Cardassians, uh, which at this point, now remember, of course, we're just meeting Garrick. Um, at this point, and actually even now, I don't think it's clear whether he could have actually sold that militant to the Cardassians or whether he would have. We know that he doesn't, but mm -hmm. the interesting thing there is, again, he's perfectly happy to let people think that he could. Yeah. One thing he does play with, with his poker smirk, is he wants people to believe that he can, or he does still have these big connections. He doesn't correct people when they believe that he's like highly connected. I mean, he still has his like 
pinky on the pulse or his toe in the pond or, you know, whatever. We do get evidence, too, though, here that he does, in fact, have some Cardassian contacts because otherwise that's I mean, that's supposedly how he knows that the Cardassian why the Cardassians are after this particular Bajoran. He tips the DS9 crew off to the militants plan to acquire a massive bomb. He doesn't know that the guy was going to blow up the station. I mean, maybe he suspected that was a possibility, but another, maybe the first idea in his head could have been that this bomb is going to be used against Cardassians, which those are his people. He doesn't want them hurt. But coming from the survival standpoint, he could be building repertoire. Coming from the right or wrong standpoint, he could see this as a big problem. And like like you had pointed out, that he doesn't want to be the old Garrett. Now, of course, the reason we bring up all these possible motivations for him to uh, uh, report the bomb is because at this point in the series, we don't know who Garrick is. And, and you know, he could have all of these different uh, uh, motivations. Throughout the series, we slowly kind of winnow those down uh, and, and rule some of them out. For instance, like when we first meet him, it's entirely possible that he's still an active member of the Obsidian Order. I mean, what's what evidence do you have that that's not the case uh, when we first meet him? Um, you know, we'll learn that's not the case. We'll learn some other things. Overall, you know, he, you know, he grows as into a more um, sympathetic character, but uh, you know, they, they do like to kind of string out the mystery. So that's where we, that's where we first meet him. Um, The next time when I think we get uh, some more clue into his uh, loyalties and values are when he shows up again in season two, about, Oh, about two thirds of the way through profit and loss. This is the one Mm -hmm. where uh, Cork, Cork uh, has a Cardassian girlfriend, um, and he has the opportunity here uh, presented to him from some Cardassian agent, which, again, mm-hmm. Cardassians maybe being untrustworthy, uh, you know, who knows if Garrick believes the offer is genuine or not, but the offer is you could become unexiled. You'd be welcome back home in or if you uh, give up these Cardassian dissidents. But he doesn't do that. He betrays the High Council and uh, explains that to Quirk when questioned as being just his love for his people. Well, that goes back to your point about his love for Cardassia, not necessarily the government. And in that episode, we had a little bit of plus spy points where he shows up and pretends that he's ready to kill the people, you know, and and fulfill his uh, agreement with the Cardassian High Council, but that's just a right. ruse to draw the other Cardassian out so that he can kill him, plus five points for Garrick. Yes, definitely. Shortly thereafter, we have the uh, episode The Wire, where where the, the questions about Garrick's past start to become like more deeply explored. And this is the one where we find out he's got a device in his head, that uh, it was supposed to what make him resistant to torture, and right. he finds uh, being on Deep Space Nine a certain kind of torture, so he modified it. <laughs> it's uh, it's burnt out, and now he's like in some excruciating pain. Uh, the main thing here, like you know, is like through the course of the episode, he, he tells three different stories about his past to Bashir. 
none of which are true. But he did use his own name, Elim, as a character in the story. That's the first time. That's the first time we find out his first name, right? Is it? Yes, Bashir. Bashir meets with Tane, who is uh, we we know at this point is the ex head of the Obsidian Order, and that Garrick Mm -hmm. used to work for. We don't know that Tane is Garrick's father yet, Um, and that's where you know Bashir asks Tane about the things that Garrick said and. Tane like laughs at him and says, Oh dude, you know, the guy Elim that he's telling you about in, in those stories, <laughs> that's him. So <laughs> it's, it's a good story. It's a great episode, but uh, it's minus five points in my number three worst. Uh, just if I'm looking for pure trade craft, um, don't use your own name in your, in your cover stories. Well, I think this is him reaching out to Bashir, like to establish you know, a relationship. I mean, like here, I mean, not to bring this up again, but like, you know, like, you know, he tells Zia that he's alone and away from home. And, you know, um, there's the cynical view of Bashir being his pet. There's also the view of him reaching out for a relationship. And DS9 has often been called cheers in space. And I, I think it's really a show about how a bunch of different people become a family. And I, and I think Garrick is, not left out of that family. Even if he's an outsider the entire time, he's still in that family. And, and this might be his first attempt to like reach out to Bashir and, and he gives him his own name, but yes, still minus five points since we're <laughs> prying around the edges. Obviously there's story reasons that sometimes people uh, spies in our stories do things that are actually against their, their better interests or represent bad tradecraft. But that's like the fun of the show is talking about those. Um, yeah, absolutely. We never in a, 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 an early episode in season three. Uh, this is the one where where Kira gets uh, abducted, but it's one, oh my god, it's one of my favorite episodes. This is the one where she she gets abducted by the Obsidian Order, surgically modified to look like a Cardassian, and then it's this whole double play where it's like, oh yeah, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're trying to. We're trying to uh, figure out what information they're getting out of her, but it's actually one of their own Cardassians that they're using her to try to unveil, which, by the way, that's huge plus five points. Yeah, they create this whole backstory for her that she really was Cardassian the whole time. That that was a really good episode. But I want to give minus five points for the fact that... Now, he does uh, get strong-armed by Sisko into helping rescue her, Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't explain why he tipped off Bashir to the fact that he knew all they know on the station uh, early in the episode is that she's disappeared and he just proactively out of nowhere volunteers the information to Bashir that Kira's being held by the Obsidian Order, which uh, doesn't mm, what it doesn't satisfy any of his needs motives or ambitions except just pure generosity of spirit right you know if we knew more about the story of why garrick actually got exiled that would have told us a whole lot more about his 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 character i think uh like and absolutely his character in a small c like like his his uh his soul um yeah 
but they made this conscious decision that they never wanted that to be entirely explained, which is probably key. You know, that's an essential ingredient to keeping, you know, maintaining the mystery around the character. But um, absolutely. <laughs> by the time we meet him up in uh, this is uh, this is a, a super Garrick episode in Improbable right. Cause. It's actually a two parter. <laughs> Uh, season three, episode 20. Uh, he's at this point, he's telling an, yet another story of why he's been exiled. At this point, I think they're winking at us a little bit when at this point, his, uh, his explanation is just tax evasion that he hadn't, <laughs> <laughs> that he just hadn't, hadn't paid his taxes. Yeah. He can't show his cards, you know? Yeah, I just I just avoided the tax collector. Right. <laughs> That's hilarious. And he sticks <laughs> he sticks to his story, which is so yeah. lovable about him, but also part of his technique is that he will doggedly stick to his story, lie directly to your face, even though you know, like he knows that you know that he wasn't exiled for tax evasion. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he's kind of fucking with you. <laughs> yeah yeah but but that's just that's just part of his brand because he wants you to constantly question what that real reason is um yeah this is another this is this is one of those points that like he 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 it's uncommon for him to flat out lie this would be one of them because he doesn't want you to know why he was exiled um whether it's like you had pointed out, he wants to be a new Garrick or whether it's him maintaining that poker smirk or whatever it, he, this is, this is one of those moments where he full blast, like just makes up a story. He spots, uh, what happens is he spots an assassin on the station, uh, somehow deduces that that assassin is gunning for him. Um, and decides now this is all stuff we find out later in the episode, but, what happens in real time is he blows up his own shop because uh, he wants to basically preempt the assassin by faking an assassination attempt on his own life, which is kind of plus five points. I mean, the, the, it, it works on the level of, I, I mean, what he really wants to do here, he wants to get Odo extremely involved in the investigation Right. And he he needs something real because Odo is a very like uh, by the statute type of guy, and he's not going to get involved unless there's a real threat. And now a real threat has occurred. Right. And also, I don't think at this point, Garrick thinks like Odo has any love for him, you know, and, and also that Odo's extremely distrustful of him. And if he just goes to Odo with this story of I think someone's here to kill me. Uh, maybe it's better if instead there's a big explosion, which obviously <laughs> that's something Odo cannot ignore. Because right. even if he doesn't care, even if he doesn't care if Garrett got killed, it's a fucking explosion on the station. You have to investigate that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and obviously it's much better for Garrick to have someone investigate an attempt on your life than to investigate the fact of your murder. Right, because that uh, it, well, it's kind of like the, you know, um, idea of law enforcement, or not the idea of law enforcement, but, but you know, a lot of times crimes are already committed, and you have to like retroactively figure them out 
versus Garrick needs something more preemptive because his life really is on the line. But the law isn't going to recognize something preemptive. They're only going to recognize, oh, shit, a building blew up. Let's investigate this. Right. And we're later, we're soon going to find out, too, that uh, uh, this that on the same day, five other Cardassian operatives were killed or met uh, untimely accidents or suddenly died of natural causes, but it's, it's right. <laughs> the brakes didn't work. They drowned <laughs> in the shower. <laughs> um, the overdosed. <laughs> uh, Garrick really insists on following the assassin, uh, the suspected assassin with Odo, which seems to me to be a breach of his cover, but that's fine because pretty soon once, um, Odo confirms with his own Cardassian contact uh, about the other five agents' deaths. Garrick pretty much just spills his beans and and says, like, yeah, those five guys and me were, like, the top of the Obsidian Order uh, underneath a guy named Tane. This is my, minus five points, my number two worst tradecraft. At this point, I get it. We're into season three. We're actually like near the end of season three. It's probably about time we drop this whole pretense of Garrick maintaining that he was has no affiliation with the Obsidian Order whatsoever. <laughs> but also it just seems to be also just plot driven and not uh, an actual like necessary spy move for him to make him giving up this information to Odo is huge and it doesn't yeah. serve any purpose except to kind of move the plot forward and kind of for us to get past this whole, you know, is he or isn't he uh, an ex member of the obsidian order, which also brings to me like, okay, so then there's my minus five points for Cisco. Uh, for later in this, I mean, Odo's going to tell Cisco, you know, okay. He said, you know, Hey, you know, that guy we always thought might have been previously a member of the Obsidian Order. Well, he admitted it to me. Well, now, (laughs) now, if you hadn't even already, probably now is the time to involve section 31 and start doing some background checks and digging or whatever. Cause previously it was like kind of a question. Maybe there were some, I don't know, some namby pamby liberal federation regulations against investigating someone without you know evidence but now you have the evidence right right and but for for the rest of the series we still just like go around saying like oh yeah hey there's that there's that ex-member of the obsidian order just walking around the promenade let's not let's not investigate that yeah (laughs) I mean, I would presume 31 already knew, you know, it's kind of like, you know, what we've seen in all the other movies we've watched where there's like a relationship between enemy intelligence agencies. Oh, right. There's a, so they probably have been watching him and he's not really doing anything other than being a tailor. And of course, like, especially in Discovery, like Section 31 turns out to be like as uncooperative as you could possibly imagine with the rest of the Federation, you know, they really keep their cards close to their chest. So, Oh really? Yeah. Even if <laughs> I still haven't even watched discovery, even if even tell me about it, I got to check it out. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I, I recommend anybody check it out. 
So I'm actually not so I'm not actually gonna give it plus five points for blowing up your own shop. I'm not gonna give it minus, but I'm not gonna give it plus. I think a better spy could have figured out a way to get Odo involved without being this dramatic about it. It's not just blowing up the shop. It's it it goes back to tracing to who's involved. Um you know, like we talked in our Born episode that like, you know, how Born created a blip on the globe, you know, by just like showing his passport at an airport. I see, know, where like, you, I see where you're going with this too, because, because by, you know, now this, the, the assassin is scared off and the assassin's going to scurry off back. And that's a trail that you follow back to, right. uh, back so, to the so, horse. So this has like a two prong effect. One, he gets the law involved and he knows Odo at this point. He knows Odo is a matter of fact, by the statute, I will throw the book at your face. I don't even give a fuck. Like, you know, I'm going to put on this pretense that I have no feelings, you know, because I have to, like, keep up my image of being about the law. So he knows Odo's not going to go in on any kind of, like, speculation. He's only going to go in if something happens. So that's where you're kind of, like, like you're a little questioning, like, whether or not he should have blown up his building. But what you had pointed out <clears> – <throat> was that creating that situation helped him track the trail of the assassinations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's where my number three best comes in, is that he he used this, uh, you know, he, he created the situation where his building was blown up and creating a fake assassination, not only one to bring in the law to protect him on his safe spot, because his only safe place in the entire universe, right, is, is Deep Space Nine. Can't go back to Cardassia, can't go to Bajor, can't go to the Earth or Feder any Federation territories, no Romulan territory. Nobody likes Cardassians, right? He can't go back home, right? His only place to exist right now is being a tailor on Deep Space Nine. So this comes into our survival point as far as like one of his motivations. And being a good spy using tradecraft, creating this like, you know, a, a fake assassination lets him get a lot of things done with one. He killed two birds with one stone, multiple birds with one stone. You know, I buy it. I buy it. Um, <laughs> when when Odo comes back with this information, and and Garrick sees the five guys on the list, I think he might immediately suspect his old spymaster Tane, because and we're gonna meet him again real soon. Tane's uh, his his line is, uh, "Remember what I always taught you: always burn your bridges." You never know who's coming up after you, which right. is another one of those like peppered throughout the entire series. All these ways that uh, Cardassians will take uh, a human metaphor or a human fable and draw the exact opposite conclusion <laughs> <laughs> right? that right. a human would, which is one of the things that makes them so delightful. I love, I love it when I love Star well, Trek. You were talking most. about the boy who cried wolf. That's that, right. That's the classic one, you know. Uh, Bashir yeah. tells him that story, and he's like, "Well, the moral of that story is obviously you should never tell the same lie twice." Like, duh. Right. Right. Yeah. No, but, uh, Which know, Garrick like, never is... does. Garrick never does tell the same lie twice. You no, know, he never does ever. <laughs> he de he definitely has his skills, and he's definitely sharpened with them. So I think that knowing his old master as well as he does um, 
I think I think he might immediately suspect Tane because he knows that that would be Tane's style if Tane was making some kind of huge play, which he'll be correct mm-hmm. about. Tane is making a huge play. Uh, right. That that one of Tane's first orders of business would be again to burn his bridges behind him. Plus five points for me and my number two best trade craft that I'm gonna call out for this show. He would know that if it was Tane that Tane will not rest until Garrick is actually dead. Once you're on the list of a particular Cardassian, that Cardassian, you're on that list until you or that Cardassian are in the grave. One or the other. There's there's no get, nobody ever gets off a a Cardassian's list. Right, (laughs) right, right. Ever. Right. There's no no point at which Garrick and Dukat just fucking hug it out. Yeah. Well, you know, I think you're right that um, this is how Garrick comes to that conclusion. But I, I think this is Tane actually being a father. And as much as Garrick wants the, the verbal confirmation, it, like it, I, I've, I, Tane's relationship in him, and it goes back to you uh, saying that like the child always just accepts the parent. I think Tane is really, really, uh, you know, teaching him. As he's getting older, he's learning new things. Garrick's getting older, he's learning new things. Well, Tane never, Tane, never made anything easy on his son. In fact, he, no. you know, he was overly. I mean, he he left him with a you know crippling uh, claustrophobia. You know, from locking disorder. him in a closet. Yeah, lo- yeah, yeah. Disorder, from locking <laughs> him in a closet all the time when he was a kid, and and like right. never giving him any uh, positive feedback like at all. But right. just just to close this out, the reason it's my number two best is that the, it's the correct play to go toward Tane, to go into the dragon's den. Because A, if it was Tane, Tane's not going to rest until Garrick's dead. So you right. got you got you got to tackle it. You know, same same thing. That's why I kind of had the Jason Bourne thing in my notes. Is uh, you know they've they've made an attempt on your life. Uh, you don't just like go into hiding, you know, you were in, you were, you were in hiding. <laughs> that didn't right, work right. out. <laughs> yeah. It's, this is it's, a supremacy moment. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's time to go at them. And I was thinking, you know what, if it wasn't Tane, of course it was, but if it wasn't, right. then it would also be the correct play to immediately get in touch with Tane to let him know about the six assassination attempts, five of which were successful. Because that can right, also indicate in, that Tane is in trouble. Either way, it's the right play for Garrick. They go ahead and they meet up because uh, when they are, I don't know, chasing the assassin or something, it does indeed lead them to Tane. But of course, Tane's got a bunch of Romulan friends, and so they capture Garrick and Otto. I also think this is like a plot reason for Garrick to have gone ahead and told Odo I really was part of the Obsidian Order. We really don't almost ever get to see Garrick operating alone. Anything sneaky that Garrick is doing is going to be like totally off screen. So Odo had to be along for this ride. So Odo, which is a person that we, the audience trust could see the interaction between Tane and Garrick. Uh, Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. And yes. and that's where in that scene of Tane and Garrick's uh, reunion, it's really like kind of we're we're really kind of watching that scene 
through the eyes of Odo in a, mm. in a certain way, because these two guys, they clearly know each other a lot. They're, they're trading some banter and some stuff, but uh, you know, we're, we're supposed to be allowed to like kind of observe and participate in that. And uh, we get some plus spy points for Tane noting, you know, like Garrick says, like something about your, your pointy-eared friends. And, uh, you know, Tane just explains that to Odo. He says, like, you know, look, look at this guy work. Look at this guy work. <laughs> right. You know, he knows, like, either I'm going to defend them, which tells, which will tell him something about, like, where my actual loyalties lie, or I'm going to just let it slide, which is going to sow dissent between me and my potential allies. I want to say, too, this is, I, I think... The first time that we see Garrick break through that um, psychic defense that he has in all his interactions, where where Tane refers to uh, Garrick as having betrayed him, and Garrick is seems anguished and extremely passionate. <laughs> he says, "I never betrayed you." Yeah, these are those moments where he just kind of like lets off. So you could tell he he is a person. I don't think he's actually capable of that psychological, emotional manipulation. If he exhibits anguish over that thought, I believe it. Yeah. I think that's always the time you get a, you're getting that peak there that you're getting that peak behind the armor. Right. Tane says, well, you have two opportunities here. You could walk away and uh, I'll let bygones be bygones, which is probably not true. And Garrick probably knows that. Um, or he can join Tane on the mission and all will be forgiven. And Odo reminds Garrick of all the things that Tane did to him, the exile, the fact he just tried to kill you. But uh, Garrick, for reasons, said, <laughs> you know, I don't care about that. You know, hey, Mr. Tane, I'm back. And I think that's might be where we smash to the credits because it's supposed to be like a cliffhanger on a two-episode uh, Delio, and we're gonna go ahead and make that the cliffhanger of our podcast as well next week we'll handle the resolution of this two-part episode and we have several more garrick-centered episodes to discuss including the truly fantastic in the pale moonlight as always the best way to make sure you don't miss out on that is to hit the subscribe button on itunes google your favorite podcast app also you can find updates on our facebook page or website spieslikeus.net And please, if you can help us out, give us some feedback by rating us and leaving comments. We always are trying to improve the show and your thoughts would be a big help. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.